Our sermon passage today is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. This is the last sermon in our series through the Ephesians. We've been uh, working in this letter since January, believe it or not, and uh, it's almost what is the end of May. And so next week we're going to start a new series for the summer, which I'm very excited about, by the way. Uh, We're going to ask the question, what would Jesus say to the church? And we're going to look at what Jesus said to the seven churches in Asia in the first three chapters of Revelation. So we're going to the book of Revelation for the summer, at least the first three chapters before it gets a little, a little hard to understand there. We'll, we'll come back to those chapters at some other time, but we'll focus on those first seven uh, for the summer. Uh, today, though, we're, we're going to see very clearly Paul means business. Uh, as he ends his letter to the Ephesians, he wants to remind them Uh, The Christian life is a war. It's a battle that you have to fight every day. So let's hear what he has to say and then talk about it. Finally, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, For all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, And that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. That is the end of the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, I know that um, you've seen the pictures coming out, very sad pictures coming out of Ukraine lately. Uh, When war comes to a place... It completely upends life. Uh, You've seen the videos of many, many, many thousands of people, even now millions of people, crossing over the border trying to find safe haven in other parts of the world. Uh, You've probably even seen pictures and videos of people standing their ground in cities, uh, even just civilians, people like me and you, just standing their ground to try to fight the Russian forces. Life is not the same in Ukraine because war is there and not peace. Don't you agree? Uh, Another example of that is there's a boat uh, docked permanently in Long Beach, California. It's called the HMS Queen Mary. 
And what makes that famous, it's now a museum, is that it was a cruise ship for many years. And it, it took the richest people all around the world on these fancy cruises. And during World War II, they were short of ships in Britain. And so they commandeered it and turned the cruise ship into a soldier's barracks. It became a warship. And so today you can go on that boat and it's, it's kind of redecorated part of it as a cruise ship and part of it as a warship. You should Google some of the pictures, not now, but later. I don't want you to go down a Google hole, but uh, I do want you to pay, pay attention and listen. But later, Google it. You can see on one side the fanciest, most posh decorations because you need, or you think you need, certain things on a cruise that you definitely don't need on a soldier's barracks because if you go to those parts of the boat, what you see are the barest places fitted out with weaponry, things that you don't need on a cruise, because peacetime and wartime are different. Well, Paul says to the Ephesian Christians, and I believe what he says to them is the same to us, because the things they're contending with are the very same things that continue to fight us today, all these years later. Christians live in wartime, not peacetime. We live in wartime, not peacetime. We make two mistakes here. Number one, we think we're on a cruise. And we want life to be like the Queen Mary cruise style rather than soldiers barracks style, right? Second mistake we make. We know we're at war, but we think we're at war with each other. Or we think we're at war with mere flesh and blood people not realizing that the battle that we're really in is a battle against spiritual powers and darkness. So we're going to talk about that today. If you look at your bulletin, there are three headings that I want to speak to you about. Uh, first of all, who are we fighting? If we're at war, who are we fighting? Secondly, what has God provided for the fight? And thirdly, why is prayer of all things? Why is prayer the chief war strategy? This is interesting. Now, I want to, first of all, just say I can't say everything about this today. Uh, you could literally do a whole series just on the armor of God. So I'm giving you a quick run through, and I hope it will encourage you uh, in the fight. First of all, who are we fighting? Uh, Paul makes it clear there in verses 12 to thir- uh, 10 through 12 that we're not fighting flesh and blood. We're not fighting people, human beings, or human being things. We're fighting spiritual forces that are greater than we are, even though they're not greater than God is. Look at what he says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So it's kind of right off the bat, we see we can't fight this battle alone. We have to be strong in the Lord, not in ourselves. Why? Because we have to be able to stand against, verse 11, the schemes of who? The devil. Paul here introduces the devil, and the devil, of course, is talked about throughout the Bible. For more information about the devil, look at the next verse, where he says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, so the devil and others with him apparently are rulers. It gives the plural there, not just a ruler, but rulers, against the authorities. Okay, The the devils have some kind of a structure, authority structure by which they do their work against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. And so uh, the devils have certain influence and power in this world right now. 
that you just simply can't deny according to the Bible. And then finally, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Heavenly places, therefore they're spiritual, therefore they're above, they're, they're bigger than we are. That's the enemy, Paul says. The devil and all of the minions of the devil. You say, well, that sounds fairy ish Stan. That sounds mythical. Well, no, think about this. God from the beginning, it says, and now when you read Genesis 1 and 2 and you read about creation, you don't read in those chapters about the creation of the angels, but throughout the Bible it's implied that when God created all the visible things, he also created invisible realities. Throughout the Bible it talks about this, how there were angels, in fact hosts of them. Uh, the Bible talks about myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels. Uh, Jesus said, uh, don't you know that I could call in 10,000 angels, a legion of angels would come to my defense and my rescue. That's what Jesus said at one point. So the Bible envisions many thousands of angels that God created in the beginning. Angels are not physical beings, they're spiritual beings, meaning they don't have bodies like we do, like men and women. Instead, they're spiritual, and yet they have great power and force. They have knowledge and they have abilities to influence things. And the Bible tells us, it doesn't give us a ton of detail, but it tells us that some of those angels created by God did not want to stay in the place that God appointed for them. Uh, you can read about this in the book of Jude and the book of Peter and uh, the book of Ezekiel. There are various places that tell this story of how some of the angels did not want to remain where God made them and so they rebelled against God. And immediately in rebelling against God, they became God's enemies they were cast down, it says, from heaven to earth. And though they continued to have great influence, their influence is used 100% completely for evil. The thing about Satan, which is another name of the devil, which, by the way, the word devil means accuser. The word Satan means adversary. So right there, just in his name. Another name used in the Bible is Apollon, which means the destroyer. I mean, just in his names... You kind of get a sense of what he's after. Uh, he hates God. Uh, that's the biggest thing you can know about Satan and the fallen angels. You see, it's not so much, I mean, it is true that he hates you. Please know that. Satan hates you. Uh, Jesus says he is here to steal, kill, and destroy human beings and all the things related to human beings. But the biggest thing to know about Satan and the fallen angels is not so much that they hate you, because the reason why they hate you is they hate God. Human beings are made in the image of God. And so when Satan looks at human beings, he sees the reflection of God, which he hates. And so he wants to destroy and deface it. He did that from the beginning, Genesis 3, when he came, slithering into the garden. And you say, well, that was just a snake. No, the Bible says the snake was that ancient serpent who is Satan. That's quoting from Revelation. That ancient serpent, the dragon that Jesus Christ will one day take and throw into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. That, that's who we're talking about in Genesis 3. He slithered up to Eve and he suggested to her that she join him in his rebellion. She did, and so he did, and so we did. Therefore... As Paul says here, this world is characterized by present darkness because not only are human beings evil, but there are spiritual powers and forces that continue to carry out their evil schemes, 
a word also used here, their evil schemes against God and therefore against humanity, especially against human beings who are a part of what Jesus is doing. Did you know, this is a big part of Jesus' story, Satan came to Jesus. Kids, I want to especially talk to you this morning. You might remember this story. You've probably heard about it in Sunday school or our kids' class. Satan, the devil, showed up to Jesus and tempted him. And remember how Satan tempted Jesus? It wasn't by physical force. He didn't come and like just punch Jesus in the head or try to knock him over the head with a rock. That's not the way Satan fights us. He came to Jesus and said, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, and if you're hungry, wouldn't you just take this stone and make a little magic trick? And make the stone into bread so that you can eat it? Oh, oh, Jesus, if you want to be the king of the world, wouldn't you just fall down and worship me? And I would just immediately hand you the world because you wouldn't have to go to the cross if I handed you the world. Your father wants to give you the world through the cross. And here I am to offer it to you free of charge. Just bow down and worship me. Kids, that's how Satan works. That's how he's always worked. He doesn't so much come with physical force as he comes with subtle schemes of spiritual suggestion. <laughs> subtle schemes of spiritual suggestion. I, I would say he doesn't even really primarily reason us into sin so much as he just suggests us into sin. I've never experienced it like, hey, here are ten reasons, Stan, you should commit that sin. Think with me here. Reason one. Reason two. Here's the pros and the cons. It doesn't tend to be the way he does it. What does he do? He sows doubt. He sows confusion. He introduces into our hearts odd or weird feelings against God and his commandments. Like the commandments of God just don't sit right with it. It doesn't feel good. And from there, he, he gets us to the next step and the next step. One writer says he usually starts by trying to get you to do one small compromise because he knows if he can get one compromise out of you, he'll form a habit over time. And if he can get a habit into you, he'll get a principle of life in you that just can't be plucked out. That's what he did with Eve. That's what he did with Adam. That's what he tried to do with Jesus. And if he tried to do it against Jesus, don't you think he's going to try to do it against the members of Jesus' body? constantly. And so that's why Paul says, you got to be strong in the Lord here. You cannot fight this battle on your own. Kids, if it's a spiritual battle, you can't fight it with physical weapons. Adults, if it's a spiritual battle, you can't fight it with, with, with physical weapons. You can't fight it with money. You can't fight it with medical advances. You can't fight it with knowledge. You can only fight it with the strength and power of Jesus. Applied to you because Jesus died on the cross to deliver you from the dominion of Satan. That's why Jesus died on the cross, to deliver all of us from the dominion of Satan, to deliver us out of the warfare that we go through. Now you say, if Jesus died to deliver us from it, why do we still have to fight the battle? Well, here's the reason. Uh, one, uh, one theologian, or a lot of theologians actually say this, that we live in the already and the not yet right now. And that's so true, right? Already... Because of the resurrection of Jesus, Satan is defeated. Already we are victors in Christ. Amen? What a wonderful thing. But also not yet. 
Also, not yet. Say, well, why not yet? Because here we are still having to live out our lives as pilgrims in this present dark age. And part of the reason for that is that you and I might learn to fight with God on our side. That you and I might learn how to fight depending and leaning on God. When the Israelites took the Canaan, the land of Canaan through Joshua, God said, I'm not going to give them all into your hand at once. I'm going to give them to you little bit by little bit so that you might learn battle. That's the way it works. Temptations come into our lives. Various suggestions from Satan come into our lives all the time. We've got to be aware of them. We can't be ignorant of it. We can't think our primary, our primary target or enemy is some other person or some political party or some whatever, some social thing. Our primary enemy is the spiritual forces of darkness, which our own sinful heart finds a whole lot of harmony with, which we have to learn how to listen to God and follow Jesus in that battle. It's the only way to do it. Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. Charles Hodge said this, If anybody goes into this battle without thinking of Christ, without trusting in Him, without continually looking at Him for strength, without regarding himself as a member of Jesus' body, he's demented. Or she's demented. You're crazy. If you're going into this battle with anything less than Jesus Christ covering you. Hodge goes on. He is the strength. Or this person has not the strength even to reach the field. Let alone to win the battle. My question this morning, first of all, is do you all believe this? It's a question we got to ask, right? I mean, we live in a scientific age where, you know, these types of things just seem kind of otherworldly. They are otherworldly, and so we think, well, are they really that real? If they're otherworldly, are they real? Well, I think they are. Scripture never ceases to try to convince us that they are, and y'all, I can't think of a better explanation for the stranglehold that evil has on our world from generation to generation than the fact that there are great spiritual forces at work warring constantly against the Lord. But I also know this, however strong those are, I mean, Satan's stronger than I am, but I also know he's not stronger than Jesus is. He's not stronger than God is. And so the battle is designed to get us to run for refuge to our great and mighty warrior, Jesus. To get us to once again cry out and say, God, we need you. And can't do anything apart from you. Please remember, demonic influence, satanic scheme is not found just simply when people's heads are turning around or levitating off of beds. That's the stuff of 1970s movies, right? It's not, I mean, maybe this kind of stuff has happened or happens, but that's not, Satan wants you to think that's what he's primarily trying to do in the world. Because then you won't notice what he is try primarily trying to do, which is to get you to choose not to bow your knee to God, but instead bow your knee to him or yourself or, or basically anything else. If Satan can get you to bow the knee to anything, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, he'll get, he'll get you to do it. So long as your knees stay unbowed before the Lord God. That's his main goal. Remember, he hates God. 
And so here's where spiritual warfare happens. Not when heads are spinning, but when you get in a fight with your spouse on the way to church on Sunday. When the alarm goes off on Monday morning and it's time to begin your week. When the person at work does that thing again that makes you just irate and you just want to bust them. When you're tempted to look at that website that you know will deeply hurt your spouse and maybe even torpedo your marriage. That's when Satan's at work. Very subtle. Very scheming. Not, not special effects from 70s movies. Ordinary, everyday events where Satan wants to get us to join his team of rebellion against God. Do you realize that? Do you realize you're at war? That's the first thing. Now, secondly, what does God provide for the fight well, there's, there's amazing things that God provides. It's described by Paul as the whole armor. Uh, he says that in verse 11. He says that again in verse 13. Uh, we could do an entire series of sermons on this. I just want to give you a couple things to think about. Uh, first of all, the armor of God are made up of spiritual things, not physical things, which is important because this is a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. And so notice all the things that are spiritual that he gives. Uh, first of all, he gives truth. It's a spiritual thing. He gives righteousness. Both of those are in verse 14. In verse 15, he gives the gospel of peace. In verse 16, he gives faith. In verse 17, he gives salvation. In verse uh, 17, again, he gives the word of God. Each one of those things is a spiritual thing, a blessing that God gives. In fact, all those things, truth and righteousness and the gospel of peace and salvation and all the rest... Those are a great little summary of all the benefits that come because Jesus died on the cross for you. Those are a list of things that you get when you believe in Jesus alone for your salvation. And the Bible says when you believe in Jesus, God has taken you out of the dominion of darkness, out of Satan's dominion, and delivered you into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. And these are the things that this great king, the king of light, bestows upon every one of his subjects. You get all of it, every bit of it. And that's important for us to stop and think about because especially if you're someone listening or, or watching in and your faith is not in Jesus alone for your salvation. There's some really hard words the Bible has for you. Uh, let me quote from Jesus. Jesus says to people, this is not me again because this is harsh, this is Jesus. He says to them, you are of your father, the devil. The devil's your daddy. You say, wow, Jesus, that stings. And yet nothing else could be true of us, born as we are in sin, prone as we are to rebel against God, even as Satan does. Nothing could be true of us except that we continue to follow him around like a puppy dog until Jesus Christ comes with his light and calls us out of darkness into light by the miracle that we call being born again. Being raised again with Christ from death spiritually to life spiritually. If you're not a Christian, I plead with you to think about this. 
I plead with you. I know that it might not seem real to you, and I pray that it would seem real to you this morning, that there is a battle beyond what your eyes can see in this world, and that you are caught hopelessly on the wrong side of that battle. And I plead with you to listen to Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins and to turn in faith to him so that you would no longer be under the dominion of your father, the devil, but that your father in heaven would become your adoptive father who gives to you the truth, the righteousness, the peace, the faith, the salvation, and the word of God which you so desperately need. But then secondly, I want to just point out to you that as Christians, these things are described as various pieces of armor which must be put on. Think about your closet at home. Everybody go to your closet in your mind. How many clothes are in your closet today? Hanging up, folded up, slung on the floor, wherever they are. A lot of clothes, probably. How many of the clothes in your closet do you actually wear? How often do you have to go through your closet and Take out all the stuff you haven't worn in years. Isn't there a difference between having a piece of clothing and wearing it? When a person becomes a Christian, they get in Jesus truth. They get righteousness. They get salvation. They get the gospel of peace. They get the word of God. They get faith. All those things are yours. But friends... We often leave them in the closet, hanging on a hanger, when Satan is ripping us with arrows on fire. We go into situations of temptation without giving any thought to what we're wearing. And here we are wearing the tattered clothes of our own resources, the tattered, frayed clothes of our own power and strength, rather than the various pieces of armor that Jesus in his gospel has freely given to us. And so a huge part of our job, Christians, every single day is to, is to actually put on the various things that Jesus has given. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, think about what it, means, what it takes to put on a piece of clothes. I mean, what is the first step to putting on new clothes? You've got to take off the old ones, the stinky ones, the dirty ones. You've got to take them off. Strip them down. And then what do you got to do? You got to pick the clothes up. You got to put them on. You got to fasten them in place by buttons. And back then they would use belts. That's why it says here the truth is like a belt that you fasten on. In other words, y'all, you can't just say, well, one, once upon a time I prayed to receive Christ. And you know, that's about the last thing I've done with Jesus. You can't do that. Well, well you know, first of all, I question whether you really have. Accepted Jesus in the first place, if that's the case. But then second of all, even if you have, you're going into the world without truth fastened onto you. You don't know the truth to fasten it on. And so part of having the truth fastened on is learning it, knowing it, growing in your understanding of what God has said, so that when Satan comes to you and says, has God really said? Like he did to Eve? A lot of us, when Satan says, has God really said, we have to say, well, I don't know. I've got no idea because I haven't read it. I haven't fastened it on. 
I've got the belt of truth, but it's hanging up on the, on the, on the rack in the closet. You've got to fasten it on. Righteousness. Wow. Uh, most writers say the, the, the breastplate of righteousness has to do not with the righteousness of the good things we do, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is imputed to us when we believe, which is credited to us, given to us. Uh, Paul, for example, in Philippians says, I do not seek a righteousness of my own that comes through keeping the law, but I seek the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. I seek that righteousness. That's Philippians 3. And so to put on the righteousness as a breastplate is to remember when Satan comes and accuses you of sin, which is his favorite thing to do, by the way, which is why he's called accuser. And most of the time when he confuses us of sin, there's some truth in what he's saying because we have sinned and we are sinners. Sometimes there's 100% truth in what he's saying and we are guilty and we know it. What's the only defense against that? Take up. For goodness sake, take up the righteousness of Christ. Don't come back to Satan with, oh, but I read my Bible this morning, so I'm good. You should read your Bible. I just told you that. You got to put on the truth. But you don't come back to Satan with, oh, well, I'm a Bible reader, so my sins are atoned for. Or I helped an old lady across the street 20 years ago, and I still remember that. I got a Boy Scout badge for it. No. No, no, no. Goodness, no. Against the holy standards of God, that means nothing. It means nothing. The only thing you can put on is the righteousness of Jesus Christ who obeyed every command, heart and body, and died for all the ways you didn't keep the commands. Put that on. Shoes. Gospel of peace. Uh, the last thing you do before you leave the house is probably put your shoes on, unless you're John. <laughs> and then sometimes you might not put your shoes on, right? You, you may or may not. Some people like shoes, some people don't. That's okay. But, but if you're going to battle, I'm sure even John will put on his boots. Here it says the gospel of peace is like your boots, the only way to be ready for what God has called you to do is to not just have the gospel as a thing that you think you know, you think you know, maybe you used to know, but it's the thing every single day. You're taking the peace that you've been given with God through Jesus Christ and you're, you're shooing yourself with it. You're reminding yourself as the day goes on, oh no, my heart wants to tell me that I am my own and I belong to myself, but oh no, Jesus bought me with a price. Put one shoe on. Uh, Satan wants to say that I'm a sinner, and oh, I am, but psh, the righteousness of Christ has been given to me, so I have peace with God forever. Psh, other shoe on. And then you're ready to leave the house. Don't leave home without your shoes. And then he says, there's the shield of faith, which quenches the flaming darts of the evil one. And, and on that one, I just think, man, how important is faith? A shield is no good if it's at your side. It's no good if it's behind your back. It's certainly no good if it's in the closet. A shield has to be on your arm out in front. And sometimes our faith is our last consideration in any decision we make and anything that we do. We think about all the other things, the financial things, the relational things, the personal preference things. We don't think of the faith things first. And yet faith is a shield. Get it out there. 
Let it lead the way. If it doesn't lead the way, there are flaming darts coming. The helmet of salvation. Y'all, the only, sometimes the only thing a Christian has is simply to know that they're saved. To know that you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. To know that you belong to God. Sometimes that's all you got. Sometimes that's all you need. It's a very helmet for your head. I don't know that there's any other thing, maybe besides the breastplate, that a soldier needs more than he needs his helmet. And for some, you may not know, I say, I don't know if I'm saved or not. That's no place to live. Uh, sometimes Christians struggle with knowing whether they're saved or not, and, and that you can be a real Christian and struggle there. We all have struggled there. But it's not a place to camp out. Uh, that there are ways that you go to the Scripture and you can, you, can follow, you can follow the path that God has laid out to understand that you really are a Christian and that God really does love you. He really is dwelling inside of you. And that can become like a helmet for your head. Amen? And then God's Word. What a sword it is. Double-edged. Sharp on both sides. Think about Jesus. Again, back to the kids. Remember when Satan came and tempted Jesus? Spiritually, well, how did Jesus fight back? He didn't, wham, punch Satan up in the face. What did he do? Quoted his Bible verses. That he memorized in Sabbath school. Why? Because God's word, God's truth is a mighty sword. To tear down arguments of all kinds. When Satan or anybody argues against God, there's an answer for it. There's an answer for it. I might not know the answer, but I know where to find it. I know what weapon to use in order to combat it. Take up the sword, he says. Take it up, in fact, he says, in all circumstances. The shield and the sword as you fight. Do you see what I mean here? Every one of these things is a gift given by our Heavenly Father through the death of Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit as He comes into our lives when we believe. And every one of these things, every day of your life, has to actually be put on for them to be effective. And so Paul makes a big deal. Put on, put on, put on, fasten on, take up. Don't leave them in the closet. Now lastly, and I'll just say a few words about this. Why is prayer the chief strategy? Well, notice, prayer is not one of the pieces of armor. That's always stuck out to me. He doesn't say, pick up the word of God as a sword and then take prayer as like a club of God. You know, prayer is the nunchucks or something. He doesn't say that. Uh, and there's a, I think there's a very important reason for that. What do you, let me, let me ask you, kids, you can answer out loud. What do you do when you get your armor on? Fight. Simple, right? Simple answer. You put your armor on and then you fight. You don't just put your armor on to lay around and watch TV. You put your armor on to fight somebody. And prayer is described not as a piece of the armor you put on to fight. Prayer is described as what you do once the armor is on. Therefore, prayer is fighting. Uh, prayer is actually the number one way that Christians participate in the fight of God 
against the evil forces of this dark world. A spiritual battle, remember, not a physical one. And so Christians don't win by winning the political battles all the time. Christians don't win by winning the financial battles. Christians don't win by winning all the arguments all the time. Christians win primarily through the power of God, which is given through prayer. And so Paul says, I want you to pray all the time. See this in verse 8? Pray all the time. In the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, every kind of prayer that you can imagine, for all the saints, and also for me as I go out to share the gospel, because there's some more people out there that's going to become saints before it's all over. Pray, 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 pray. Prayer is fighting. John Piper uh, gave this example once. I think it was in one of his books. John Piper's a, a pastor or was a pastor up in Minneapolis. Um, and he said this. He said a lot of times uh, Christians act as if prayer is like an intercom that you use to call for more room service in the hotel. Beep. Yes, we're out of caviar and champagne in room 542. Bring us more caviar and champagne, please. And John Piper says that's completely wrong. Prayer is not an intercom for more room service. Prayer is a walkie-talkie from the front lines back to the commander for reinforcements, for supplies, for relief in the heat of the battle. This morning, I want you to survey your prayer life. How much of it would lead people to believe you think you're on the HMS Queen Mary when it's a cruise ship versus being on the HMS Queen Mary when it was a soldier's barracks? How much are you using prayer as an intercom to simply get what you want so you can spend it on your own desires? Or how much are we using prayer as a walkie-talkie for reinforcements in the spiritual battle that God has promised to win through Jesus? Here's another thing. If prayer is fighting, if prayer is the main thing we do once we get the armor on, y'all, we really have to have a prayer first strategy. Sometimes if I'm honest, I got a prayer third strategy. I've got a good prayer fifth strategy. Can you can you relate to this? A prayer when all else has failed strategy? A scheme first, pray second. A try to get it done on my own strength, and then, oh, I failed, so i got to go pray because I'm ashamed now. i got all those strategies down pat. Very easy. I, I can do it all the time. What's hard is developing the prayer first strategy, to really believe that when I pray, God is at work. And it is God's work that this world primarily needs, not mine. Martin Luther said, I got too much to do today not to spend my first couple hours praying. And we're always saying, I got too much to do today to spend my first couple hours praying, right? We do it the opposite way. And the reason we think that way is because we don't have a prayer first strategy. Because we don't actually believe that prayer is what you do when you get your armor on. Uh, it's kind of a cliche and a little cheesy, but that whole idea of a prayer warrior is actually real. 
It's, it can be maybe said in a cheesy way, but someone can be a prayer warrior. And I actually believe that that's what we as Christians are called to cultivate in our own lives. Warring through prayer. Learning how to be on our knees. Learning how to call out to the Lord. Learning how as a church to have a prayer first strategy. It's one of the things that the elders and deacons you know, really are geared up for. And this is something we're going to be talking about this week in our initial meetings. We want to be prayer first. In thinking about leading the church spiritually, in thinking about providing for the church physically, pray first. Because the battle that Greater Hope Church is in is not against flesh and blood. And so budgets won't meet the day. Buildings won't get her done. The battle we're in is spiritual. And so the only way that we can stand, do you notice how many times Paul said that? Stand, 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 is to be fitted with the armor of God, which equips you to pray like crazy. There's a scene in the book of Revelation. It's a scene of heaven, the throne room of God, and everything is great up there because it's heaven. Down below, everything is going crazy. The seals are being opened, and all the disease and the war is happening, and people are dying. And this is a description, really, of, our, of life right now in the world, right? Everything is bad, or a lot of most things are. In heaven, there is God on his throne. And in this scene, it says that the 24 elders who represent the church who's gone before us and the angels, they came to God with incense in their hands to offer. And it has this little saying that says, and the incense is the prayers of the saints on earth. And it says, when the incense went up, one of the angels was sent out by God and he took that that censer of incense and he picked it up in his hands and he he threw it on the earth and the war stopped say well that's weird yeah it's kind of a weird image but but it's a beautiful image is it not a beautiful image The prayers of God's people on earth are being heard in heaven and God is employing those prayers to hurl his own darts back down to earth so that his people could be not only preserved but could be fully redeemed so that his world would not be forever in the hands of evil forces that the kingdoms of this world would belong to our Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. The prayers of God's people is the work. The prayer of God's people is the battle. We don't pray in order to battle. We don't pray in order to do the work that's really important. We pray, and that is the work. And and the part of my heart that when I say that doesn't believe that, we also need to pray about that. (laughs) Because I'm going to tell you, there's a part of my heart that even when I say that, I'm like, really? That's the work? Really? Ask Moses, ask Elijah, 
Ask Jesus, ask David. They didn't believe it either, but when they prayed, God worked, and they know now that was the work. They know it now. Stand firm, therefore, putting on the whole armor of God, and having put it on, pray. Let's pray together.